Welcome to the National Academy. I'm Marshall Price, the curator of modern and contemporary art, um, and welcome to another installment of the review panel. Um, before we begin, I'd just like to remind everybody, please um, switch off their cell phones, if they would. Um, there is a bathroom um, just outside in the back of the room, if you need it. Uh, coming up, we've got a number of exciting programs. Um, two weeks from now, on November 6th, uh, we will have a program featuring Will Barnett and Ray Kinsler in dialogue in the galleries, and it's in conjunction with our current exhibition, uh, Reconfiguring the Body in American Art. I'd also like to remind you that um, the next review panel will be Friday, November 20th. Uh, the participants will be Leslie Cammy, Barry Schwabsky, and Katie Siegel, joining David Cohen as the moderator. And the exhibitions under review will be Tracy Emin at Lehman Maupin, uh, David Hockney at Pace, Sharon Horvath at Lori Bookstein, and Sterling Ruby at Foxy Productions. So I hope you all will come and see that as well. I'd also like to thank this evening uh, DCA, the Department of Cultural Affairs, and the New York State Council on the Arts for helping us fund this program. So with that being said, I'd like to introduce the moderator this evening, David Cohen. David is the gallery director at the New York Studio School, as well as the editor and publisher of artcritical.com. And David will now introduce the panelists. Thank you very much. And thank you, National Academy, for, for all the administration that makes this uh, wonderful series possible. We're in. Uh, uh, installment two of the sixth series, so we've become something of an institution ourselves. Um, who, who is here for the first time, never been to a review panel? Ah, right, that's a healthy splattering. So let me actually just tell you how we do things. Um, and in telling you how we do things, everyone who knows how we do things, listen carefully because we're going to do things differently. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we, we are reviewing four shows that uh, hopefully most of us, hopefully all of us on the panel, have had a chance to go and see. And um, we, what we do is we uh, look at some visual representation of the shows in wonderful videos made by James Calm. Um, and then uh, we, we will look at a couple of the shows together, uh, the panel, discussing it among ourselves. Then there'll be a chance for the audience to let off steam and share some of your comments on those two shows. Um, then we look at the last two, and then there's more steam, and then there's the cold night air. So it's a very um, elemental evening. So lots of steam and a lot of air, and um, hopefully some, some light and clarity as well um, from my distinguished panelists. Uh, what's slightly different this evening from other evenings? It sounds like the... Passover service, is um, that, first of all, the table is round rather than square, which is an experiment in um, lovey-dovey communitarianism, <laughs> although we haven't had any fistfights, and it's not, it's not as if the review panel is the Politburo, but that lineup can look a little intimidating, so we're experimenting with that change. And the other little experiment this evening is, um, instead of going back and forth to our video, uh, because the videos are nice and short, 90 seconds each, we're just going to have an intense session of looking at the shows again in one fell swoop. Um, okay, let's do our viewing first, and then I will introduce you to this evening's panelists. 
Well, as the, as the last image on the screen told you, the panels can be heard in podcast version at artcritical.com slash review panel um, uh, sometime after the event. Now, my pleasurable task is to introduce our panelists. We have two neophytes and one veteran. Uh, Bridget uh, Goodbody is gracing us for, with her presence for the third time on the review panel. She is an art critic, art historian turned art critic turned um, entertainment impresario, <laughs> entrepreneur. Uh, she's working on a top secret uh, entertainment project that she can tell us nothing about. And, um, but remember her name. Uh, she will no doubt will be catapulted to enormous fame, even greater enormous fame, uh, very soon by this top secret project. Uh, she is known to us, however, as a distinguished and perceptive critic through the pages of the New York Times uh, until relatively recently and in other publications, including for some years, Time Out New York. Uh, Robert Morgan uh, is an artist, art critic, curator, and art historian, and a uh, performance and installation artist. We, uh, some of us had the pleasure of seeing him perform at The Lab, uh, the storefront gallery on the corner of uh, 47th Street and Lexington Avenue, the uh, Roger Smith Hotel, where the installation remains on view through October the 30th. Um, uh, Robert is a, a, a professor at uh, the School of Visual Arts and uh, teaches also on the graduate program at the Pratt Institute. He is a contributing editor at the Brooklyn Rail, uh, sorry, a consulting editor at the Brooklyn Rail, a contributing editor at Sculpture Magazine. Um, he's the New York editor of Asia Art News, Asian Art News, uh, the author of many polemical books, pamphlets, monographs, including perhaps most notoriously, the 1998 publication, The End of the Art World. Here we are in, in 2009, and it uh, <laughs> seems to be still here, but uh, uh, I no, think we, the, we don't know that. David. We don't know that, exactly, and also perhaps the end trajectory, so therein described, is, is entitled some grace period. Uh, Bill Berkson, uh, uh, this seems to be the, the night for multitaskers, as far as... Uh, um, pursuing a whole, wearing different hats. Bill Berkson, best known to the world as a poet. He, in fact, has a 50-year retrospective of his poems, just, just out now from uh, Coffee House Press, Portraits, Portrait and Dream, um, uh, which is, uh, he's been promoting in a, a lecture tour. Um, as the, uh, uh, the title of that collection signifies, he is a poet with a strong interest in visual art. Uh, he's, in fact, for uh, 24 years on the faculty at the San Francisco Art Institute. Uh, he's a contributing, a, a corresponding editor at Art in America. And um, he, uh, um, last but, and probably least among his many accomplishments, is that he is the poetry editor at artcritical.com, where he advises on the series of collaborations between uh, poets and artists. The most recent one was... Am I on the master? You are on the masthead. The, ma the most recent one is, you need to look at Art Critical sometimes, Bill. You'll see yourself on the masthead. <laughs> Our most recent uh, poetry for art uh, collaboration was Vincent Katz and uh, Francesco Clemente. And our next one uh, being posted um, next week is of Pat Steer and Anne Waldman. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome that distinguished panel. And now the business of the evening, which is to review certain exhibitions. We're not going to do it 
quite in the order that the film presented them. Um, I'd like to kick off with the sculpture exhibition at Matthew Marks of uh, Vincent Fecto. This was a show I was looking forward to enormously, having only seen one or two isolated works by Fecto, and in particular, the early works of his that I'd seen were uh, delectably precious in scale. They were really very small. Now, even the works we saw um, at Matthew Marks are by Richard Serra, or even Henry Moore standards, not monumental. Um, indeed, perhaps they could be unmonumental in the, the sense described by that uh, New Museum inaugural exhibition. Um, they, they have that kind of radical informality that seems to be quite prevalent in sculpture these days. Um, but by the standards of the early work, of the, of the specific works I had got so excited by, of uh, Vincent Fecteau, these were fairly chunky works. Um, Bridget, what did, you, <coughs> what did you make of them? How did you respond? I had fun looking at them, actually. I thought, you know, for, for, because of, I wasn't familiar with the work. So, um, you know, and I at first couldn't really tell what they were made out of, which is always sort of interesting. You sort of think, are they ceramic? Are they metal? Are they paint? You know, and, and then to find out that they were paper mache was sort of a surprise. And I, I'm not using it enough. Sorry, is that better? Thank you. Okay, sorry. And um, and so there was this weird kind of origami-like effect. And at one point, I thought they were very graphic. I sort of <laughs> thought I saw a Robert Indiana love sculpture, you know, sign in the blue sculpture. Somehow, you know, I was having these. It allowed for all these interesting free associations, um, you know. And I thought they were very accomplished. I'm I'm sort of surprised they're getting as much attention as they are getting. Um, uh, and I think, you know, and it's, I think it's very interesting at this time to have, um, you know, work like that suddenly appear and be deemed so important because it's such a, it's, you know, there's nothing trendy about it whatsoever. And, um, you know, sort of ages away from some of the other work that we're even looking at today. So. Um, but I, I think perhaps one of the reasons they might be getting the, the sort of attention they are, I haven't particularly noticed the attention, but the, the very fact of being a Matthew Marx is... Uh, Roberta Smith sort. wrote a, yes. a nice review. Um, they, 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 they seem to have something of the... If, if you went, for instance, from David Zwerner's show of Raoul de Kiza straight mm -hmm. to Vincent Fecteau, mm -hmm. you might notice some commonality of spirit, a certain uh, studied slightness, um, and also quirky material. Um, um, I, I was uh, kind of a bit nonplussed, however, considering how you know, the papier-mâché, the, the informality of the structures, the, the certain whimsical throwaway quality. I was surprised by how fussy, actually, some of the decisions in the surface quality was. Um, Bill, what did you make, how did you, were you able to reconcile surface to structure, or was there a problem for you there as it's well? It's funny that you say fussy, because I saw those in the artist's studio in San Francisco, where he lives, and I, I thought they were uh, quite the opposite. I was sort of at first, and so I liked the show here, but I didn't like those, and I've liked his work in the past, but when I saw them in the studio, I thought that what you call fussiness was too uh, random and sort of, uh, yeah, random, and uh, um, maybe aggressively so, maybe fastidiously so, I don't know. But here it looked right. And uh, also this, uh, I wouldn't make too much of the small scale because one of the things about his work as a 
watched it over the years, but particularly, <laughs> but particularly, uh, have to be, do the Louis Armstrong here um, uh, uh, in this work was that it suggests, um, you know, you're going to, uh, uh, it's going to be the next Frank Gehry building or something. It's got this aspect of, uh, of why isn't it? Uh, is this a model for something that's going to command? The East River forever after, you know, and uh, and then it and then it settles back into its quite resolutely uh, into its precise scale, you know, its size, and it's the size it is, which is interesting for sculpture. I mean, if you think, well, okay, we've been heading towards this this uh, what sometimes monumental is a funny word because it really has to do with commemorative and. It, it doesn't mean big, you know. Uh, well, it, it may mean it may mean it may actually pinpoint uh, Robert the distinction between size and scale. I mean, because they uh, the informality of the surface and the the fact that they're not hard edged, they're kind of a little bit soft, and that, that handmade quality uh, gives them a kind of smallness of, of size. But um, the fact, as, as as Bill says, that they could be uh, models for monument for for buildings. Uh, implies a greater scale, but um, I'll come back to surface and structure. But where do you stand on the sense of scale versus and size? Did they strike you as small, big? How did they? How did you? It reminds me that uh, famous. Your question reminds me of that famous quote from uh, Sam Wagstaff uh, in relation to Tony Smith uh, when he was asked, "Is it an object?" Tony said, "Too small." Let's see, how did he put it? Too large to be an object. And then he said, is it a monument? And he said, too small to be a monument. I think that, uh, David, I'm having problem with radical informality, I have to say, because I see these works as incredibly formal. And uh, also, I have to say, in their favor, it's a very non-pretentious hybrid between painting and sculpture, which I find quite interesting, possibly the most interesting part of the work. Uh, I also, given the fact that he is, I think, a diehard modernist, there's, I don't have a problem with that. And I also love the fact that he talks about feeling as the ultimate factor in making a decision in terms of the shape, okay? This interests me a great deal. It's also curious that the works are untitled, that he's not trying to laminate a poetic discourse in relation to this feeling, that he just leaves that feeling open. I did find a resemblance on a structural level to the work of Tony Craig, even Tony, even though Tony is working much larger. And what I mean structural level in, in the sense that they all are basically the same. As Muddy Waters once said, I won't be a great blues player until every song sounds the same. And I was thinking of that quote, actually, <laughs> when I was looking at uh, Vincent uh, Fecteau's work. Uh, I think that they are non-aggressive, which is refreshing. Uh, particularly by a male sculptor, and um, nothing against Richard Serra, but it's nice to see the opposite or another point of view. In terms of David's issue about uh, surface and structure, I think that's precisely the point. I think the uh, coming together of those, uh, those aspects, uh, which are formal aspects after all, I think is what uh, gives the work its uh, virtuosity. Oh, well, coming together, but, but Bridget, I found they, they didn't come together. I mean, because the, uh, the, the structures, the sculptural objects had um, a definite uh, integrity to them, 
whereas the um, surfaces were often rather gratuitous, the uh, stuck on papier mache, uh, the, the, the stuck on the, the um, wrong phrase, the, the, uh, the collage effect with the newsprint and other materials, and also these um, uh, change, I mean, they, from a distance they seem monochrome, but you get up, there's always one side that has some um, uh, painterly alternative going on, and uh, I found that intriguing, and it didn't have anything to do with the structure, so it was like a, like a few, um, there was, it wasn't really a conversation between surface and structure, they seemed to be on different planes. How did you respond? Yeah, well, I was just thinking of um, Robert's comment about them, their, their relationship between them and painting, because I wouldn't, I, I'm, I don't see that, and I, uh, and you know, and I was thinking that on some levels, I think he's experimenting with color, but that's it in terms of you know what might relate it to painting. I mean, because it's such a matte surface, and it seems like he's using it to kind of accentuate the shape and the form, the the formal qualities of the sculpture. And I mean, I think they're very accomplished and rigorous pieces, but I'm not sure I'm going to remember them for very long. You know, they're not going to be the. They don't have that. Uh, there's something they just didn't. Um, you know, I feel that he's, ex what's exciting about them is that he's experimenting with something different. And I appreciate that in an artist. It's sort of like he took a risk. Mm -hmm. And I think he's working on it. I think maybe, the, the, you know, it's exactly the memory factor that Roberta um, brought up. That, you know, you, you have to keep circling and circling and you don't have an image. It's not a single image sculpture, mm -hmm. uh, which... Uh, takes care of one problem forever with what is sculpture and why is it so confusing to look at if, you know, like somebody walks behind it and you think you're really looking at the vantage point and so forth. It doesn't have any, so it is hard to remember because what are you remembering? You're remembering you're circling and circling and looking this way and that and feeling the thing out. And I think Robert was absolutely right about I, that occurred to me too. Craig and everything that Craig comes to, comes from, which is British sculpture beginning with Henry Moore. Mm -hmm. The holes and the bumps and the, you know, and all yeah, of that. But Craig always yeah. gives us um, a very finessed surface where the, um, yeah. uh, where, the, uh, where the surface is kind of intellectually integral yeah. with whatever we're looking at. Well, it's, yeah, President Fecteau's deliberately break, breaking that. Well, in, in, in that sense, Craig is, is different, uh, although I, I don't think that the surfaces of uh, Fecteau are non-integral. I think that uh, I, I you know, kind of want to insist on this idea of, of the hybrid because I feel that the, the color, the shapes, uh, the sense of space, is coming from painting, and, and maybe that's uh, accidental or incidental. Uh, I can't, I can't say because I'm not there watching him do it. But I know he's working with a beach ball. I don't know if that's a fact that everybody understands. And the beach ball is being twisted and turned in different ways, and that determines uh, the beginning of the shape. It doesn't determine the finalization of the shape, or the re what we, I think, in modernist terms, can safely call a resolution. Okay. Uh, but the resolution is clearly something that he wants, and uh, he admits to feeling, and not to repeat myself, but I think that that's not so bad, okay? To get back to that idea, it suggests a kind of intimacy in getting back to Bill's point about 
the scale, and I, I don't know if I would call it monumental, I, I didn't feel that. Uh, I think that there is an intimate scale, and that intimate scale has a certain presence, and I felt comfortable in the presence. However, if I were to uh, describe one of those, how many were there, eight sculptures in the nine, mm -hmm. whatever there were. Anyway, if I, were to discover, uh, if I were to describe one of them, I would have difficulty. But if I were to describe the experience of all of them, I would have no difficulty. That's, that's, that could well be indicative. I, I share the sense mm -hmm. of the intimacy and also the painterliness. And I think that, that uh, however they are processed, how, whatever process was entailed in making them, the, the, um, the, uh, the, the sensation that one has looking at them is of the hand of the artist on it and a hand that was um, n neither trying to be expressive nor trying to disguise its own presence. So it has that kind of um, middle ground um, sort of nonchalance almost. Well, almost a bit like, I say, the, the surface of a Tom Noskowski painting. Hmm. Um, it's, it's not expressionism, but nor is it hard-edged. It's, it's, he's there, the artist. Well, there's a sculptor that some people may remember in New York who uh, uh, they reminded me of, and that's George Sugarman. Does anybody here remember George sure. Sugarman, mm -hmm. and uh, who who used color and, and and weird shapes, and the sense that um, you know I think of it as along the lines of uh, um, th there's a a nice tradition in in uh, in art over the past eighty years or so for the being in between metamorphosis transition states what Lozano Henner mm -hmm. calls you know where what you're looking at is the in-between of identities. Mm -hmm. De Kooning was very good at this, you know. Um, act actually, it's very tough to bring off in sculpture. Mm -hmm. but to, you know, to me, it's interesting, because I, you know, I, I mean, I see them as very much of this moment. And mm -hmm. I really, you know, I, the one artist that I would really thought a lot about in relationship to him was uh, Getty Saboni. Mm -hmm. It really does, you know, sort of picks up pieces of <clears throat> carpet and, well, you know, trash, essentially, and then makes it into a kind of an installation that you move through that has faceted forms mm -hmm. that are often organic. And that you have this sort of weird, I always feel like there's something, you know, I'm looking at something, but I see something else on the other side. And I'm led through it in a certain way. So to me, they were you know, as much about performance as they were about sculpture, per se. You know, that there wasn't, I mean, that he's working with this rigorous form, formality and modernism, which, you know, we all know well and love, and, but he's also, where he seems to be maybe pushing it is in that, you know, is shifting the visual experience, which is more about, you know, because it is human scale, huh. you know, and it's where you are in relationship to it. Um, not whether it's towering over you or you're, you know, focusing on it as a miniature. And um, there's one thing we're not mentioning, which is that it's on pedestals, which is like a, a radical move at this moment, you know. Well, and, and it's not joking about it. I mean, Rebecca Warren seems to be joking about it, you know. That's a and good point. You're beginning yeah. to see yeah. that happen. I saw it in various instances in Venice where sculpture seemed to be making this big comeback all of a sudden. But I, I don't see how technically it could not be on a pedestal. I mean, we would, it would have to be a lot bigger if it was on the ground, and we would have a radically different... Have, have you ever stumbled over a Joel Shapiro in Alex Katz's loft? 
Yes, indeed. But that Joel Shapiro was, was making a point. Uh, Joel, Joel Shapiro in, the, in his 60s work, yeah. uh, and, and Tony Caro as well uh, right. in his early work, they were making a point, no pedestals. And that was... Um, well, the point uh, has been taken. But the point is now it's been internalized in a way, in, in, that, in that one wouldn't want to make a point. I don't think an artist today, working today, would make much of a point one way or the other about the pedestal, because that was a, a 60s problem, as it were. Uh, if I can say this, uh, Bridget said something that I, I think is very significant, uh, but I'm going to use that word in a different way in a moment. But uh, she said there are sculptures of the moment. But I've discovered that most of what we know about art nowadays is the media's idea of art. And if that's what it means to be of the moment, then that's one thing. But lately, uh, with my students, I've been talking about what is contemporary, which I think is a little different, because contemporary suggests some kind of advance that is so much within the moment that it really takes you to the next level. I don't see that happening with Fecto at all. And also, let me put it this way. I think that Fecto's work is, uh, is, is, is uh, sim what is the word? Um, it is of the moment, but it is not, uh, it's symptomatic, but it's not significant. Uh -huh. uh, symptomatic would be, <laughs> that's, uh, that's. I finally got there. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> I think that Bridget and I seem to be suggesting that he's a very, um, that, that what he's doing taps into a sensibility that's fairly prevalent among um, sculptors and installation artists and object makers. Um, not, as, you, as Robert seems to be arguing, not pioneering a new aesthetic, but that, that aesthetic's not so old that somebody working within it need perhaps have the anxiety about pioneering a new one. Is that necessarily what we're asking for? I mean, um, I, I, is, that seems to me sort of a museological way of seeing things. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed Roberta's... Uh, Review because it seemed that she was simply taking pleasure in this work and she wasn't so so much worried about it's pointing the way to a new era in sculpture. Yeah. Uh, well, which, if, you know, if, if he was pursuing a, uh, a craft position of something that's already a completely established um, uh, and well-worn uh, kind of way of making sculpture, then that would be perfectly reasonable. If somebody was, say, a modernist in the way of Tony Smith or... David Smith or somebody, uh, you might just say, okay, well, we'll leave aside the fact that this is old hat. We'll just enjoy it for what it is. But I, th I, don't th I think if, if you're working in a way that is uh, very contemporary and in a sort of discourse or dialogue with other contemporaries, then I think that's different. Yeah. Let me put it this way, Bill, in terms of what I'm trying to say, that uh, I saw this work, I respect this work, I appreciate it, uh, but it doesn't excite me, okay? And if it doesn't excite me, there's no advance, uh, at least from my point of view. Okay, okay. That's, 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 that's a criterion we can, bring, we can all bring in our own, <laughs> to, to every work, but uh, to find a common ground, no, perhaps I mean, for, for this, we, need to be, we need to be focused in uh, the work itself. Um, I'm, I'm saying it from the point of view of my experience with this work. Oh, yes, it's, it's your experience of this work, but yeah. when we talk about the next show, Bridget can say... I liked it, but it didn't excite me, therefore it doesn't move the discourse forward on that next group of work. So it's, uh, I appreciate that they're your criteria, but to be a shared criteria, um, we need to uh, like be a little, get, them, get maybe more specific. 
Um, well, I think that's, um, that's good on Fecto. I think it's, it's, it's nice to leave the table hungry still, as it were, and we could carry on talking about Fecto. But let's stay with sculpture and think about um, Lozano Hemmer's exhibition um, at Haunch of uh, Venison. Um, um, is it sculpture? Yeah, I was going to say. Is it sculpture? <laughs> well, it, you, if you step back from it, uh, if, uh, you might knock into it, and that's, I think, Ad Reinhardt's definition of the sculpture. Uh, there would need to be a painting in the room for the sculpture to... Well, there's a debate about that. There's a Newman, you said. Where? In, in his lecture on ornithology, actually. Uh-huh. He was very interested in ornithology. Right. He was. For birds. Yeah. Yes. Because some people even attribute the quote to Baudelaire. So um, someday someone's going to have to bring out a book and actually show us who said it, where and when. That's perhaps the art critical challenge. You'll get a, a free copy of Bill Berkson's book. <laughs> if you can actually cite, if you can actually cite, and this, this will be broadcast so the world can hear this, if you can cite whether it was Barnett Newman, Ad Reinhardt, Charles Baudelaire, or none of the above who first said, that sculpture is what you knock into when you stand back to look at a painting, you will receive a copy of Portrait and Dream. Not by Jackson Pollock, but by Bill Google Bilson. it over there. But, but when you, this is the problem. When you Google it, you'll come across hundreds of references, of which 30 will be to <laughs> Reinhardt, 30 will be to Baudelaire, and 30 will be to Barnett Newman. Anyway, yes, it probably is not sculpture, but it is an object. So let's, let's view it and think about it, Lozano, their experiences, Lozano, Hemmer, um, are they good experiences? Do they excite you? Do they move the discourse forward? Robert C. Morgan. Well, as I was saying to Bill earlier, uh, before we started formally on the panel, I think that Lozano, Hemmer, uh, deals with a lot of issues that are in front of us, whether we understand or admit that. Uh, these issues are very much there, and they're certainly part of the biannual circuit and different artists are performing in different ways to deal with this uh, virtual world. And I think that uh, uh, Lozano Hemmer, uh, by the way, he's part of a generation of uh, Mexican artists that is quite interesting. Uh, that uh, many of them have been, in fact, my, my students. Uh, for example, Gabriel de la Mora, who currently at a, has a show at the Museum of Modern Art in Mexico City. Uh, and uh, had a, sh a big show in Houston, actually, uh, last month. Uh, Sandra Valenzuela, a very, very interesting uh, young woman who is thinking in these virtual terms from a little different point of view, maybe more photographically. And uh, Edgar uh, Orlinetto, uh, who has spent some time in New York and who also is involved in this. And I think the best known of the group is, uh, at least at this moment, from a media point of view, is Lozano uh, Hemmer. I, I was intrigued by the pulse spiral as I entered the gallery. I, was, uh, uh, I found reference flow absurd and to some extent humorous, and I'm not against the absurd at all. As a matter of fact, I like it. Uh, and you tolerate humor as well? Uh, occasionally, but I try not to too okay. often. And uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, believe it or not, for me, uh, Lozano Hemmer and Alex Katz have something very important in common and that is they're struggling with the problem of intimacy in relation to publicity. Uh, and this is a very difficult, I think, problematic to deal with. I sense that there is something 
very internal, almost an expressionism in Lozeno-Hemmer, uh, but at the same time, everything moves immediately from the personal to the public. And, the, and it goes from the tactile immediately to the virtual. And there's, in fact, the, the title is rather humorous because I see very little transition. It's just going immediately from the mind, which is within the realm of the virtual, to something that is within the realm of publicity. So it's like and a dualism with no, with no, in a way, with no transition. In a, in a way. No synthesis. Uh, Bill, um, uh, did you find that there was a transitional phase? A transitional well, most, state? Of the, most of the transitions that I experienced were of failed technology were about three of the, if you call them exhibits, weren't working that day. So, uh, but... Uh, uh, no, I think that's very interesting, and I don't have anything to add to it, uh, uh, what, what Robert just said, except for that. I mean, I enjoyed, I had seen Pulse Spiral before and experienced it before, and there, the, these things are um, what you call it, environment sensitive. So that w when I first saw Pulse Spiral, it was in Venice in a, in a dilapidated palazzo way, way away from everything else towards where... Um, Klaus Kinski on a horse is, and uh, um, uh, uh, it was a dark room, and here you're in this bright, shiny, you know, uh, Sixth Avenue uh, gallery, and uh, it was quite a different experience. It was sort of like uh, the doctor will see you now, uh, <laughs> you know, which was, I mean, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, this is a work, I think that part of what Robert was talking about was that uh, the intimacy is uh, is human intimacy, and this was a work that you might best visit with someone you love. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I as, did. As we... I did on both occasions. Oh, you did on both occasions, too. Yeah, but... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, let's now compare notes. You visit <laughs> when one visits. Oh, no. Bridget, did you go alone, or did you take a paramour? I went you... alone. <laughs> Same alone. someone, David. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's kind of an interesting show because there are, most of the pieces there are smaller versions of larger installations, which as larger installations, you know, like giant public sculpture in the middle of Madison Square Park work brilliantly. Mm -hmm. And as a sort of a small installation in a gallery don't work as well. Because what he's really wanting to do is to make us all realize somehow that as individuals we're connected to everybody and what connects us is this technology. And so I think that he's um, actually in this realm of artists working in this way, he's making quite a, a step, as quite a few steps forward. You know, it's sort of, there's a lot of people who are working with interactive installations that are not making art, whereas he is actually making art in this instance. I still think there's we st I think we still have a ways to go in terms of really feeling, um, you know, because I really want to feel totally in the middle of an experience like that. Mm. You know, I don't want to be kind of distant from it. I don't want to feel like I'm looking at a painting or I'm looking at a sculpture in a normal situation. If I'm interacting with something and I'm participating in it, I want to know, I want to be in the middle of it. Yeah, this is not the artist's fault, but you do go to each segment. How many are there? 16, 18? And it's like, let's see what this one does. But it does have a fun, fair yeah. feel to it, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Because you're looking at a lot of and, very and, expensive and I'm sure gadgetry. That's not his point, you know. And well, it's not his point, but it's his show, and it's his medium, and it's his chosen material, and it's his chosen project and process. So 
then to stand back from all that and say, oh, well, it's not his fault that it feels like you're going to a science funfair on Well, I didn't say expo. it's not his fault. He, I, uh, I agree he agreed to it. But, yeah, but, uh, I, it's I, his aesthetic. It's, it's not the point of the work. I mean, even if, if, whether you're a modernist or not, the point of the work is the work. I mean, that you can't say the point of the work is, is the intentions or the agenda of the artist. I mean, uh, we're there with some very expensive um, uh, high-tech equipment. Mm -hmm. We're there with um, some uh, fancy technology, but un underwriting some rather facile um, uh, points about uh, whatever they're making the points about. Um, are we getting much of an experience, or are we just being blinded by science? Well, I, I, you know, I think the experiential factor is uh, is very problematic. Uh, I, I didn't. I, I think that Bridget's point is well taken. I didn't really feel a great deal of experience, although I imagined the possibility of an experience. For example, the one with the uh, cell phones where the light is uh, shot mm -hmm. up into the, the sky. I thought that was quite good. By the way, uh, I realize that some of the audience may not know what pulse spiral was. Bill and I were talking about it. It's a suspended piece. Uh, it's, it's actually a very kind of beautiful chandelier type piece. And you grab it with your two hands and you see your heartbeat. And that kind of pulsates out into the space. Unfortunately, at uh, Haunch of Venison, it was too light to really get the kind of sensation that I think mm -hmm. uh, Lozano mm -hmm. uh, Hammer uh, wanted. I think conceptually there's another layer to it because there's a, there, in fact, the memories uh, within each bulb of every person, every visitor who has held the hand. Right, so it joins. So the, it's, well, it, when you put your hands on it, it's like being in the gym and they're taking your <laughs> When you put your hands on the bars, uh, the first thing it does is the chandelier turns off, your heartbeat beat then registers in the lowest light, mm. and then it pushes itself up in the hierarchy. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's obviously a lot of, he, he's, he spent a lot of time with a lot of technicians to get that to work, or he's a, uh, you know, a chi 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 bang bang style inventor himself, who's, who's able to uh, really, you know, get a lot from what he wants. But um, beyond it being a pretty chandelier, do we, do, can we connect is there a, are we the transition between the pretty chandelier and whatever the spiritual or conceptual meaning is of all these heartbeats um, displacing one another and bouncing up and down on the chandelier? I think that's what you were suggesting. Well, you know, I, I, he is, uh, I, I think, a fairly sophisticated uh, Mexican guy. Uh, as we know, there was a, a, a major... Sophisticated for a Mexican or sophisticated no, per no, no, se no, 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 who happens to be Mexican? Uh, you, you don't know where I'm going yet. Okay, uh, you know, you I'm, talking, I'm talking about the importance of the chandelier in that culture. Oh. And uh, I think this is a cultural sign, and I think that clearly he's aware of that. And therefore, this cultural sign is a means to transmission, which I think is quite beautiful. I, I have to say, now that I think of it, that is probably, if I can say, the great piece in the show. Okay, because there's a lot of different pieces, but that one is the one that really stands out for me. It's very much in the present. I, I really felt that I was there at the moment that I was touching that. I didn't feel that with the other pieces. Some of them. But Robert, that's a very subjective statement. And the question, my question though, was about was really kind of very specific because you've got the the visual impact of the piece, and then you've got the quote unquote meaning of. What, uh, of how it actually works. Uh, is there a connect between those two things? Do, when, do you have some experience, or oh, Bridget, let me put the same question to you. Do you have the experience uh, when, when your heartbeat displaces the others and then moves up the scale? Did, did you have an experience that somehow related back to your heartbeat? No. 
I mean, in fact, I had to sort of be told what to do and how to do you had it, to read where the to program put my hands, yeah. and then you know, and what was going on, or I would not have had a clue. You know, I would not have known that that was my heartbeat. I think the Madison Square Garden uh, Park piece is a little bit different because it's bigger, and because there's such an impact of the lights pulsing around the park on such a large scale. Mm -hmm. And so, I think that's what I meant when I'm. You know, when, when it, you know, I mean, you know, I, I didn't mind the picture of, you know, the different colors of the Game Boy, which I forget the name of the game because I'm not a game player, but it had all the different color palettes right. and it was very minimal, a la Cory Archangel, and then you kind of appear in it and your shadow is there. And I mean, I thought that was sort of pretty. And I think there is a, there is a trend of, of artists sort of working with video art and making minimal pieces, minimalist pieces. Um, I mean, the kiss piece, which I actually found kind of grotesque um, to look at, because... This is a whole room where you've got four big plasma yeah, screens. Yeah, and then there's little tiny, tiny little pictures videos of people's from... faces, and then, you know, then they're kissing each other, but it's not like a Hollywood film kiss where it's sort of gorgeous and romantic. It's like their tongues are sticking out. And, uh, you it's know, more and, like a Warhol kiss. And, you know, or it's a pornography kiss, you know? It's sort of like... A, you know, and how, did you, how did you take the fact that he'd also separated it between gay and straight plasmas? Was that... Did you notice that? Well, I did notice it, and I, you know, and I thought it was, you know, I mean, I, you know, I thought, boy, he really spent a lot of time looking for pictures of people kissing online. I think there's 4,700 different kisses or something. Is that right? There was, yes. I, wasn't that right? So I think you just Google kiss so and yeah, the video. Google uh, yeah. <laughs> kisses for sure. But still, I, I think it's really... Most I mean, ordinary people, when they're kissing, do look sort of odd, you know. Mm -hmm. You have to yeah, do really. a lot of work uh, in the studio to mm. to get Gable and, and uh, Deborah Carr to do it right. <laughs> and I appreciate it. I think there was some Clark Gable or somebody. And they didn't have the, the grant. But, but I do think that in terms of... Well, they of, did have the grant. You know, in terms of the question we were asking before about... Carrie, Carrie Grant, yes. I, I do think he's pushing things forward. You know, I do think that this is kind I mean, you know, this is where we're going. This is where <laughs> yeah. we're going. You I know, it's like the next Matthew Barney is going to be working like uh, this. You know, in my opinion, you know, it's yeah. sort of like... Well, let's you know, just I have I keep a waiting <clears> for the next <throat> Matthew Barney <throat> or the equivalent working in this kind of a medium. You I'm know? waiting and for Matthew Barney to disappear, frankly. Oh, my God. I think he's like the sexiest man alive. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you know? I don't like sex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll send you with Bridget to see the Lozano hammer again. And we'll, we'll Remember, see what you happens. were here. Yes. Uh, audience, audience, save us from our uh, confessions up here. Tell us uh, what you made either of... Uh, we're going to... Uh, the way I like to do it when, when we get audience response is to split it between the two shows. So let's start with the Lozano Hammer, which we, we've just been talking about. Anybody have any comments or, or feedback or uh, Are any uh, of the artists here? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's, that's their business that they are. That's, that's, Raise uh, your hand. Uh, it's their business that they are. Um, uh, yeah. Can anyone like to talk about uh, uh, Lozano Hammer in, in the audience or, or make some observations, questions? Uh, there's a wandering mic going around, is there? Yes, marvelous. Uh, who would like to, anyone have any comments about Lozano Hemmer? They wish to share? Any questions? How many of you saw the show? Uh, oh, okay. Ah, right, okay. Did, about, didn't anyone see what, uh, yes. Wait for the mic, if you would. If you, hello. If you could wait for the mic, yeah. yeah I mean, if you, in my opinion, I thought it was science fair-like. The chandelier was good-looking, but I had no idea what it was. Uh, I thought it was 
you know, just something fun to look at. That was my impression of the whole thing, not reading any details about it. Right. I mean, I think in fairness to him, a lot of the pieces are sort of um, documentary pieces of the actual works. So, uh, I mean, there were some works but there, but that the, the his bigger work, like the Madison Square Park one or the light show over Mexico City, which I think was also somewhere in Japan, mm. you know, which is really quite beautiful. It's sort of like a woman was there who participated in the piece, and she told me the story about how she texted, you know, a note to her best friend. She was in Australia. Her best friend's in Paris. It's a, you know, telling her how much she loves her, and then that sends her a link to the show, and then she clicks on the link, and then she gets this light show, because the light is responding to the nature of the text. Mm. So she has a light show for her, from her friend, and it's traveling all over the world. And I, I, you know, I, I do think that that is kind of beautiful and interesting, um, you know, more so than trying to put your hands on a chandelier. Well, it's two it. different things. I think the piece, I, I also like that piece very much, but we only knew about it conceptually with a few mm -hmm. small documentary photographs. So it was really presented as conceptual art more than the reality of the experience. But the chandelier was one that we could instantaneously participate with. And uh, that kind of literalness is closer <clears throat> to minimal art, whereas the other Pulse piece is uh, perhaps uh, closer to conceptual art in a certain way. But just uh, if I can recall Marcel Duchamp, when he did his ro uh, Rotary Demosphere and many of these works that he did that involved these, these spirals that he was dealing with in, in uh, glass and, and, and so forth, that he never wanted to show those as art. Uh, he said these are something for science fairs, and and he intended he he wanted a parallel career like Leonardo da Vinci. You know, he he wanted his science interests and he wanted his art interests. Okay, but unfortunately, you know, since uh, his death and so forth, we see these all kind of put together, and there's no explanation that his intentions were really towards science and optics. In fact, that's what he was interested in, and, and never intended those to be shown as art. Interesting. Okay, Fasten uh, facto. Uh, anybody see his show in the audience and particularly want to share some comments? Yes, that, that's, there's a lot more uh, interest in the photo. So, uh, great. Uh, yes, that's good. I thought of painting when I saw it as well, more than sculpture, because of the surface and the quirkiness in the hand. And I was thinking about painters like um, Stuart Hitch and Thornton Willis from huh. like the late, mid, sort of mid 80s. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of childlike image, but now the image is sort of 3D. You got a new Christmas toy or something. I mean, I enjoyed them, but mm. I, I was thinking of painting as well as I saw mm. this. Okay. Uh, uh, um, I so agree with what you we're, said. We're, 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 we're getting to the audience now, Robert. So uh, anyone else in the audience like to speak on, on, on Fecto? Uh, okay, well, that's fine. Oh, there's one more oh. thing. Yes, good, at the back row. Please wait for the mic. I too saw the, the sensibility of painting within, within those sculptures, but I couldn't help, I couldn't appreciate them for individual objects, sculptural objects. I kept looking at them as maquettes for something that was meant to be larger. I did like the surface, the very matte uh, quality of the painted surface. There were two pieces, number untitled number five and I think untitled number seven, who the edges were worn, parts of it looked as if it had been neglected over time and was dirty, 
in relation to the rest of the collection that was in there, the rest of the objects, that seemed a little more pristine, as if they were painted just, you know, repainted just for that show, but he didn't have time to do those two. So the, the lack of quality surface on two of them in relation to the others gave me an overall disappointing kind of feel about the work. I think I would like to see it larger or maybe you know, hear the artist talk about what his, in, his intentions were. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, front row, since we're bouncing from one extreme to the other, so but please wait for the mic. Please wait for the mic. Well, I didn't see the show, but looking at the pieces in the video, it seemed to me that maybe the artist had in mind an idea of mediocrity. It just seemed to me that they were neither here nor there, or that they weren't, didn't even seem to me to be statements about painting or sculpture. Okay, let's, uh, let us um, move on. That's a Kosuvian. Uh, yes. Um, we, we're now going to think about the uh, Yigal Ozeri exhibition uh, at uh, Mike Weiss Gallery. Uh, we're going from uh, transitions to anima. It's a very psychoanalytic evening in a way. Um, Is this the one that's called The Persistence of the Feminine? Uh, this show is called Desire in Anima. Oh, it was the uh, uh, Anima, right. But it is about yes. the persistence of the feminine. <laughs> how, many the people, feminine how many people here saw, saw the show yeah. so we know what... Oh, yes. my goodness. Yes. Um, Babes in Glades. Yeah, I like that. The feminine was indeed very persistent in this Lead show, uh, Bridget. Um, <laughs> Lead them to it. Uh, yum, yum. <laughs> No, no. Uh, are we, where, what are we to make of this? Um, Robert, I'm going to ask you, because Robert Morgan has written a catalogue essay on uh, an earlier show of Yigal, and so um, I would be interested, I think the, the, the first question one has to ask when you have photorealist uh, paintings of uh, uh, a rather beautiful, barely pupescent uh, uh, pre-Raphaelite redheads, uh, uh, lolling about in, in nature is, is whether uh, this is an, an artist with a, a, a very advanced uh, sense of irony or a rather uh, retarded sense of sexual identity. What, what would you uh, care to suggest is the way to look at this artist, uh, Robert? Well, let me put it this way. It's not irony. Uh, okay, I think that he's uh, really into it. And this, uh, this attachment of a, a kind of Jungian... Uh, point of view in relation to the anima, I think, is uh, almost a kind of justification. And then there's the problem of the underwear, but that's something else. Uh, it, it just seems a little awkward to me. But uh, you, you know, want to get rid of it, or you wanted more wear? Well, I mean, if you're going to have these these nude ladies in uh, the forest and in the glades, uh, in the pastures, and so forth, uh, it just seems uh, absurd to have the underwear. Uh, you know, I have nothing against underwear, uh, I, but, you know, I, I, however, you know, if we're talking about lingerie, that's something else, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're just talking about a covering, so to speak, okay? And I kind of wonder why he did that, all right, uh, which, you know, gets back to your point, David, in fact. 
But, you know, I've, I've, if I can say, David always wants me to be objective, and I can do that, but sometimes it's difficult, and I have to try and get my distance here. But uh, I think he does mean it, okay? And he has a lot of people that are working with him in terms of this project. Uh, he's really learned to paint in this way, uh, you know, relatively recently, but he's really worked at it. I know that for a fact. And sometimes he's successful, and sometimes he's not. And he's looking for this structure that is, you know, for a better word, psychological, okay? And I don't think that the show is by any means 100%, but I think that there is a kind of originality that I respect about it. And as, you know, I was talking about the feeling aspect of Victor Fecteau, Fecteau I think that there is there's a great deal of that in, uh, in Ozeri as well. But I think that it's almost, in his case, in contrast to Fecto, something where you have to go piece by piece, because some of them are, uh, are, are uh, they have a sublime quality, and some of them do not. And uh, the problem is the critical difference between the works themselves, and I don't feel that the artist maybe pays enough attention to that critical difference in terms of what is really functioning in terms of his concept of the anima, in terms of what he wants to transmit through this work to the viewing public. Right. So, Bill, uh, technically, we, we're with photorealism of a sort here. The, the artist uh, has taken his own photographs of uh, one or two uh, favored models. Uh, they're projected and traced, uh, and it's a, a hyper-realist or photorealist um, uh, image that's generated. Um, that there's a distinction between hyper and photo, and we, we might want to get into it. We might not. Um, what, what, what do, you, do you feel? Um, do you feel uh, a connect between the way these images are dispatched, uh, the imagery that's pursued in it, and the, the the level of feeling that either the artist or the viewer might have about the images? Oh, I agree with Robert that I felt that there was a sincerity and that, that he uh, absolutely knew what he, uh, what he wanted and uh, was going for it. And um, So what did he want and did he get it? Yeah. Well, he wanted, he, he, he wanted the, this, this, I think, is, is that another Hollywood movie? Actually, that's yes. a quote from one of my poems. Really? What did he want and did he get it? There you are. Well, course, with a different pronoun. But uh, uh, I think he, he wanted, I, I don't know what he means by the anima, so I won't even use that term because I, I, I just read a wonderful piece that a Jungian wrote on the anima in, in singers like uh, uh, Billie Holiday and Lee Wiley mm. and others. Oh. And mm. The idea of the anima there seemed to be a, uh, an extraordinary, something akin to the Spanish duende where, you know, uh, uh, blood and earth and, and uh, a, sense, a very strong sense of the perils and uh, heights of existence were present. That's not there. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's babes, you know, and uh, if that's his idea of, of the anima, it's okay with me. But uh, photorealism, <clears throat> the, the, you know, he achieved something which is that when I first saw the work in reproduction uh, online, I thought they were photographs. And when I walked in the room, uh, I sort of thought they were photographs again, even though I'd read the literature. And then you go up close to see that the hair actually looks like that funny kind of pasta 
that uh, uh, orange pasta. And no, you know, it's not, it stops the paint. And uh, it's not painting of any interest to me. So I don't see what it's about, except that there's a lot of desire in it to register this, um, you know, this some sense of beauty, uh, but it's not mine. So that's subjective. Bridget, there are many many artists there. who paint uh, many artists of both sexes who paint people of uh, both sexes who are very beautiful. Uh, it, it becomes <laughs> problematic if the artist is male and the the, the model is female. If the artist is a uh, man of a certain age, and the, the models are all look like they're about 18. Um, but, uh, okay, does he... The, the Jungian title, I feel, is making us feel that there's something uh, sincere, uh, psychological, spiritual about the endeavor. But the work looks like ironic, postmodern schluck, doesn't it? Uh, so there's, this major, there's a major disconnect between uh, the... the the, the, type, the, the, the stated intentions and what we get. Are the stated intentions themselves sort of ironic, do you think? How, how would you, did you look at this show as being a kind of uh, something maybe akin to, say, an artist like uh, uh, Damien Loeb or, or even John Curran as being a sort of ironic uh, statement against painting and, and a sort of shock, a sort of one in the eye because of its overt... Uh, unreconstructed masculine mm. sexuality, or uh, did you just think that this is somebody who's not quite sure where contemporary taste is? I, don't, I think he's very sure where contemporary taste is. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and I think, that, um, you know, I always want to say it's Ryan McGinley, Ryan McGinnis. I, I, you know, it, it's fashion photography, and um, you know, sort of warmed up to relate to maybe pre-Raphaelite painting if we're, if we're really feeling generous. Or and, Andrew Wyeth, maybe? Or Andrew Wyeth, maybe, except for that, you know, not even then, because he's not, he's painting serious women. Um, but I was, I should say that I was told that he was fascinated by those Wyeths. Yes. Well, certainly for the uh, technique. Hel Hel the Helga Wyeths. Mm -hmm. And that did lead to some of the... Well, the one best one, which is the one you've got a picture of here. Uh, okay. That's the best? No, no, that's not it. <laughs> Sorry, we're interrupting Bridget. No, sorry, I retracted. That wasn't one I had in mind. Yeah, I mean that could be in vogue, don't you think? <laughs> um, and uh, so, I mean, I don't. You know, I feel like he's confused about what he's saying, he's doing, and what he's doing. And even, you know, the. I mean, the technique is fantastic. He's so accomplished. You know, you really do. I walked in. I hadn't looked it up. I didn't know they weren't photographs. I was really surprised to like get a little close and find out that they were painted and and I appreciated that. You know, I was like, oh. You know, and I felt it was a little gimmicky. I felt it was gimmicky. In the end I thought, well, you know, okay, you're trying to fool my eye and you're trying to entice me with sexy young women and you know, that's enticing. And but anima, I mean, like that's serious that's a serious, serious kind of topic. And, you know, to me, you know, he may be trying very hard, but to me, there's a huge disconnect between what he thinks he's doing and what I see rep he's representing, in my opinion. And, um, and, you know, yes, I mean, I'm, you know, I came of age, I have a feminist art history, you know, one of my minors was in feminist art history at, at my, for my doctorate. And, you know, I find this kind of work a little offensive. Um, you know, and, 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 and I don't find Ryan McGinnis, uh, McGinn, which one is he? 
the photographer. The one's the you know sort of graphic-y. McGinley, thank you. I, you know, I don't know what it, it's like. Some no, sort of. Ryan somebody else. I couldn't make. McGinley. It's yeah. Ryan McGinley, and you know, I, I sort of, you know, these nymphettes and young, beautiful people running around naked all over the place. It's, you know, it's sexy and enticing and groovy and hip and um, makes me wish I was twenty again. But at the same time, you know, um, uh, I was sort of an old hippie too, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Actually, you know, look, all the three panelists are not getting from you a straight answer on the crucial issue. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sorry. You're, I'm so you're, offended by those pictures that also, I can't help. I can't. You're all clearly. saying, you're all saying really interesting <laughs> things, but I, I, I need to know: is this artist trading in a kind of postmodern sense of dislocation? Is he uh, deconstructing? Beauty is he deconstructing no. painting? We, 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 no. we already told you that. No, no you didn't. You no. Didn't. Yes. I did. So no, he's, I, it's I, fashion. I, 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 I said it was an irony right at the outset. No you said it's not yeah. irony, but you yeah. say that it is fashion, and he knows what he's doing. But I don't doing. mean that's. I don't think that's irony. I, I mean I, he knows what he's doing to some. He's trying to make some positive uh, image and uh, arrive at some satisfaction of his own fantasy of what. Eden might be like, I think. Ah. I, I, yeah, I think that the innocence is something that he's really searching for. You know, this is his reality. And I have to say that you can take that however you want. It's not irony, but that's what he believes. Uh, he began, you mentioned pre-Raphaelite painting, with this uh, very famous, uh, uh, almost logotypical work of John Everett Millet of Ophelia. And uh, he did several details of his model doing that, not exactly the same, but close enough. And uh, I asked him about that, and he said the pre-Raphaelite painting was, in fact, a, an important source for him because of this innocence. And uh, you notice that all of the paintings are done in nature and not in the urban environment. And so he's trying to go to the opposite side of the fence, so to speak, in terms of an urban psychology, and uh, in a very kind of blind innocence perhaps, he's uh, trying to show us what he believes is another possibility. And uh, I don't think the, uh, the sexiness is really something that he's particularly interested in. He, he's more interested in the fact that these women are in this environment and that th this is what they represent. But let me just say one more thing about this idea of intention. You know, uh, intention and titles often get confused, like, you know, with, on the panel we're talking about the title of Desire and Anima. But, you know, that if, uh, getting back to Duchamp again, that if Duchamp had named that painting from 1912 that was in the Armory Show, uh, Cubist Diagonals in Space, which he could have, instead of Nude Descending a Staircase, nobody would have cared about that painting, okay? And so titles, bear a certain weight, and they bear a certain weight in the history of art. And that is something we have to confront. We can't deny that reality. This is Jessica in the park. <laughs> Jessica okay. in the park. I'm taking that home and putting it under my pillow. Yeah. Okay. No, it's okay. Here, Dave. Okay. No, I don't need. I, I don't got, need. I got a million more. I, got I better, mean, you know, here it is. I got is, better things right? the other Women side of the camera. Never going to be the same. Okay. All right. I think I think we've penetrated anima uh, 
far enough. And it's time to yeah, return to, to, just to get the back surface. Where you said, I don't think he got what he wanted. All right. Okay. Yeah, I, I okay. <laughs> I did, uh, you know, I was, I was happy to get the, uh, the rise from the audience, but I, I literally meant, I, I did actually mean, did he get from the audience the reaction that he wanted? Does he, does he not, does he care? Is he a man who cares what we think? Do we think? I don't know why he would bother to put all that information in the, in the press release if he didn't care. Mm. Right. Because it's such, bleh. I mean, okay. it doesn't make any sense in terms of what you're looking at. Mm. So right. he must really believe that that's, mm -hmm. you know. And let's, you have to give him credit for that. Yeah. Let's, let's move on to an artist uh, who I think perhaps does uh, bind on the surface what he thinks, feels, sees, and with, intends. Uh, Alex Katz and these drawings that we've seen. Drawings of the last few years uh, in charcoal. We're, we're used to uh, drawings from Katz since at least the 70s, 80s, which uh, have this, uh, um, uh, uh, are in graphite, a move to charcoal uh, uh, bill. Um, Significant this change of medium? In yeah, I thought that uh, I actually sort of hoped that it happened because he looked at those amazing Surah Kante crayon drawings as shown at MoMA a few years ago and uh, uh, got a new idea. And uh, partly the texture of the charcoal on very heavily textured uh, stock. And I found them, uh, the, you know, I found them really beautiful and. Uh, uh, he even got, uh, Alex once said, uh, uh, I can, Alex Katz once said, um, if you get a good likeness, it's a bonus. And I found about 10 of people that were recognizable to me. And, but then there were others that were completely unrecognizable among people that I knew. But the one of uh, Rob Storr and the one of Irving Sandler were like, uh, uh, and as Katz said, that's a bonus, the very good likeness. But I found it. I found it extraordinary, as he is, virtuoso performance, and, uh, and actually many of them very touching in their view of humanity. R Rennie Ricard said a wonderful thing about Katz once. He said, if you pose for, for Alex Katz, he's going to give you a college education. <laughs> I mean, the look of somebody who has had one. He, he likes to show people at their best. Bridget, um, after Yigal Ozeri, did you re restore your confidence in, 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 in the male artist <laughs> with Alex Katz? Well, <clears throat> I, 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 you know, it, it would be hard to talk about them in the same conversation, actually. Um, you know, I, I mean, I guess, you know, like Bill, there, you know, personal relationships with some of the, the people in the pictures, and so, you know, for me, it was this sort of interesting experience of thinking, well, you know, there's Irving, but that doesn't, that looks like Irving, but it doesn't look like Irving. And then, you know, there's Vincent, and it looks like Vincent, you know, and it's sort of this sort of his son. And, um, and so it was, you know, I mean, I couldn't kind of get away from the, the who the people were. You know, there was this sort of sense of, because of course, you know, he talks about it being about opticality, about being black and white, about forms and volumes, and it, you know, it's worked so much in a kind of um, 
a painterly idiom, you know, is sort of working towards that. And you know, the interesting combination of that with the intimacy of the, these humans, um, you know, the distance, you know, the incredible distance and, and witnessing from, from afar as well as the, I mean, I thought they actually looked so amazing in the video. Um, I mean, almost better in the video. Um, the distancing that the video puts by erasing a little bit of the hand. That's an interesting point, and it relates to what um, uh, Robert gave us a little sneak preview of his thinking, perhaps, on Alex Katz, when you talked about this uh, um, reconciliation of uh, the, 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 the intimacy and, and publicity. Um, that's, I think, something that's uh, a fascinating insight into Katz in general, but I wonder if it's... Uh, uh, it's even especially relevant in this show. Is this a different side of Alex Katz, or do you think that same uh, dichotomy exists here? Well, if anything, this show clarified the dichotomy, if you want to call it a dichotomy. I, I think it's a more of an equivocation, uh, a struggle, in fact. I, I think that it's very much with Alex uh, as a human being. You know, uh, Alex is very good with space, and uh, I noticed that, uh, I, I thought it was, frankly, somewhat uneven in the show. I think that he's better when he does portraiture where there's a lot of space within the face than when he tries to scrunch the figure into the middle of the page. Uh, some of those don't come off so well, but the faces are ineluctably very special. You know, they're, they're, they're really quite touching. And there is uh, one figure in particular that was so different than the others because it wasn't something that was derived from a pop sensibility of the figure, which is often what uh, Alex does. Uh, it's a woman, Vivian, I don't know who Vivian is. She's his, his daughter-in-law. Daughter well, it's just, uh, I, I felt something with that portrait. I mean, I, I was profound. I thought that it was so touching, okay? I don't know Vivian, but after seeing that, uh, that, that portrait, uh, I, I thought that you know this is something that almost stands out in the show. So I, I guess I'm saying two things: that uh, occasionally he will hit something that does that, but I think that his general reference point is more within the space of pop, and he's particularly good with what I would call the pop portrait. I think that this is where he really excels. I would say historically that that Katz's association with pop is misleading and uh, incidental and generational more than um, substantial and that um, it's, it's the relationship of his, his taking the portrait to a monumental scale that related to the billboard and happened at the same moment as Rosenquist and Warhol that has led his form of figuration to be associated with pop. But I think his sensibility is um, actually has very little to do with mediation and the media. I think it's rather the other way around that his uh, view of humanity is so distinct and distilled that it has permeated the media and the media follows him, not, not he, the yeah. media. My, my reference to pop is not, I, I know about the billboards and I know that argument, but that's not really uh, what I'm saying. Uh, as I'm looking at Kim and Phoebe and uh, Jessica, Mm -hmm. uh, a different uh, Jessica, by the way, from uh, The Babe in the Woods. This right. Is Jessica Craig Martin. <laughs> I'm yes. talking about Alex Kess. Is that what we're talking about? Okay. We are, yes. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the way these are uh, represented and the kind of expression that they're given is, I mean, it, it's, it's on the surface, but it's quite 
extraordinary. I mean, he's really mastered this way of doing the portrait, okay? I can't think of anybody offhand who does it as well as Katz on that level. Uh, I think that, again, you know, sometimes there's a problem with a figure if he's working too small. I think that Alex needs space to really pull it off. And I think that the kind of space is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking so much about the earlier references from 1966 in, in, in relation to Warhol. I'm talking about how he deals with uh, space in terms of a form of mediation, in fact, in relation to the portrait. Bill, uh, perhaps, perhaps what Robert is, in a way, pointing us towards is that uh, Alex Katz has a language of the figure which is um, drawn from sources such as um, uh, fashion photography um, and um, um, Japanese prints, or for instance, it's eclectic sources, but all of them. Antonioni. Uh, yes, blow up, absolutely. No, no. The early, when the big heads appeared in the uh, 50s, uh -huh. the, 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 the trilogy Eclipse and Alentura and uh, La Notte. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, that was a very, for a lot of painters, that was a very important. Hmm moment when those things, those films showed up here. But that doesn't uh, make, the fact well, that the, the cropping, the cr that cropping yes. came from that. Well, you know, oh. Linda Nochlin once said, uh, I think it was her essay on realist painting, that what makes, she was talking from a 70s point of view, uh, early 70s point of view, that what makes this realism new realism is the fact that the perception has passed through the media. In other words, it's passed through that's cinema right. and that, television, that's what and, and that's what makes it. Realism. That's what makes. That's what made. Well, that's, that's what made it convincing too. for her. He was looking at uh, at illustrations in newspapers. But there's a there's a radical distinction, isn't there, to be made? Would you agree with this, Bridget? Between, on the one hand, an artist who's aware that um, mass reproduction and popular imagery have changed the way we see, and an artist who's making art that is in some way a commentary about pop culture. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I just keep thinking that there, there is all of that in his work, but I think that he's just so, there's a formalism, there's such a rigorous formalism there, and I think that that, uh, you know, sort of governs everything that he does, from the way he deals with the spareness to create something that feels flat, to the way he uses a, you know, the brushstroke is, you know, when it's evident, it's, you know, very, very specifically used. And, and because it, you know, and he, I mean, he's just, I mean, he is the father of contemporary portrait painting through David Solly to Elizabeth Payton to Karen Klimnik, even if they're working in a different kind of a way. I mean, there's all sorts of people who are also working with his style of painting, doing more pop culture. They're contemporary artists um, whose names I'm forgetting right now. One of them shares it, Anton Curran. He's very cool from California. Bendix Holmes? Oh, oh, uh, no. Uh, no um, I know who you mean. You know, the peace um, signs and the... Um, anyway. Yeah. Go see him at Anton Curry. It's going to come to me. Yeah. I know who but you But I mean. just sort of think... Big, you know, goofy faces. You know, that, no. that he's so... That, that what he's really concerned with is painting. Yeah. And how painting and what you can do with the two-dimensional surface and how you can play with all of that, all the concerns of minimalism... Um, in my mind, uh, can affect a portrait painting and how you actually see the world around you. And so I see that as a beautiful marriage in his work, uh, even when he's dealing with landscapes. You know, his, uh, his landscapes are always my favorites um, of his paintings. Maybe that's because I'm from Maine, I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
I see something really familiar, but I do think that this, you know, he brought something human back into the discourse, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I think that, you know, and that's had such an, a powerful impact. The relationship of all his smaller works and his drawings to painting is, is, is something that's fascinating because we, although these are very resolved works, I think works of great beauty in themselves, uh, and there's a whole show of them, um, he's an artist who has a process that involves uh, different layers and different levels of uh, working directly from observation at, at one stage, such as these drawings that we're seeing here, and then synthesizing that into something abstracted from observation in the final painting through the, the Renaissance technique of the cartoon. And, and there's a very knowing back and forth between observation and artifice. Um, I found this show, uh, Robert talked about its unevenness. I don't disagree, but I would phrase it as variety. I, th I thought there was an amazing richness of variety. I've seen a lot of his graphite drawings, and they have tended to be, to my eye, his least exciting and, and energetic medium. And yet, this, this move to charcoal has just opened, uh, taken, it, taken this activity to an entirely different uh, place. There seem to be extraordinary uh, varieties of texture and depth and darkness, richness. Mm. Sometimes they're al almost approaching the painterly and there seem to be some liquid, perhaps even a thumb, uh, <clears throat> saliva or something, um, um, mushing <coughs> the charcoal onto this watercolour paper. Um, um, do you think, when you say that they're uneven, Robert, do you, do you mean that, um, that sometimes there's an awkwardness in the, the handling of the figure in space? Because I, I see that as being actually a strength rather than a drawback in, yeah. in his language. I, I, unfortunately, I don't see it as a strength, and I meant my comment to be a critical comment. I, I understand that, but uh, do, do you, so, but, so do, we, do we as a panel think that Katz is after a very conventional verisimilitude and that it would be, by his standards, a failure if there is a tightness and <coughs> awkwardness or a crampness, or is this actually something that gives a positive quality? If I can Bill, just... Well, all right. Sorry. I mean, sorry. Uh, Bill... I thought, well, you wanted to say something. Sure, please. He did, but he said a lot. Bill, Bill is passing <laughs> his right to comment to you now. Yes. Uh, I yield the floor. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, well, often we deal, uh, in terms of higher art education with issues, uh, I'm talking about art students in college, uh, particularly at the graduate level. Uh, often I get uh, students saying that uh, maybe the artist intended it to be that, and I respond generally that maybe he did intend it, but it doesn't make it good. Two different things. That I, that's, uh, that's a fundamental uh, of art philosophy that I think everyone on this table would agree with, but something specific about Alex Katz would be whether he intends it to be awkward or not, he let it go out into the world, it is awkward, is the awkwardness a limitation and a drawback, or does the awkwardness give it an energy and an excitement? That's not a question of intention. That's a question of our formal analysis of the given work. And so, Bill, I come back to you and ask this question. When, as often is the case, it looks kind of cack-handed. Uh, it, it looks cramped and awkward and strange and weird, and uh, that's not the way to make a good academic drawing. Do you find that's a regrettable moment, or do you find that's a good moment? Was that cack-handed? That was a phrase. Uh, <laughs> a phrase that, Is that Chuck like Close. Ham-handed. Ham yes, ham-fisted. Yes, ham-fisted. Well, I said he was a virtuoso. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that every drawing uh, hits the jackpot, you know. 
But um, so, what is the jackpot? Is the jackpot academic finesse? No. Yeah, the jackpot is what you don't know that hits you uh, and makes the hair rise on the back. Right, there you go. And uh, you know, it's not uh, it's not the Ruskin school of drawing. You know? Right. Uh, so um, I don't know. I mean, the variety. One one thing that was very interesting to me, which is probably which probably could be you know, demoted to academic uh, uh, art history is this one that you can't see it, but there's this one of Ada from the back with this loop, right. which is just left, you know, bare paper, I think, you know, which is pretty unusual because, because it looks like, it's one of his, it's just, I'm sure it's just one stroke. And, uh, you know, that's like uh, Giotto's yeah. circle. Mm -hmm. And you think, terrific, you know, and, and, and yet uh, mm. I kept thinking, do I know, is that a Degas? Do mm. I know that from before? So maybe it's mm. like an unfortunate mm. internalized on, on his part yes. or mine. Mm. And I don't know, but at the time I, 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 I loved it. Um, I'm not, I'm curious about one thing with, with, with um, we can't replay the video, but with Robert, which is when you say the, uh, I, th I think you may be saying two things. There's the space, there's the space where the figure is shoved all the way to the side, like red smile, you know, and then you have bare space, so to speak. Yeah, here. I, I, or, I, I, or there's the space where you said something like squeezing it into the middle. Of well, the, so I mean, the, the, the space is the picture, but uh, the, the the works that are successful. I mean, yeah. there's some really magnificent works in, mm. in the show. Yeah. But it's not 100%. And I feel that I can identify the ones that I think are magnificent and right. the oh. ones that are, you know, uh, without, average and, and the without, ones that maybe yes. fall a little short. But when, I, when, when I'm talking about space, it's not so much the ones that are off to one side in terms of an asymmetry. I mean, for example, I'm looking at two portraits right here. I'm sorry, they're in my little uh, gallery they're the severely whatever. cropped ones, right? but, but the space is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it, ah. it's just the, the way it gives the face expression. And I refer to that as a, as a kind of pop orientation because that's what I see in his paintings also. Mm -hmm. And the, the expression is there, but it's there because of the space. Okay, his, his own vocabulary of space. I think that every culture has a vocabulary of space and every artist who represents a culture or a transculture has that vocabulary of space. I mentioned transculture because that seems to be our reality in the moment of globalization, okay? That we're all dealing with influences and perhaps it's very difficult to get at the origins of culture now. But I think that this is a reality, very much of a reality that we have to struggle with in terms of reviving and revising a sense of connoisseurship in order to understand what we're looking at today. Okay, so to get the connoisseurship with cats uh, pinned down, we're talking about the space in cats. Now, cats, um, in whatever medium he's working in, is somebody who loves a certain flatness. Um, and uh, he often will compress uh, an expectation of uh, physical depth in order to energize the image by making it, uh, electrifying it with that sense of flatness that, say, brings to mind um, Japanese prints, uh, ukiyo-e prints. Now, um, is that the quality of space, the spatial dynamic in cats that you find exciting, or? Well, let's put it this way. Ukiyo-e, remember, was the television of its time. And, uh, I mean, this is what people looked at for entertainment. 
and uh, they're magnificent. Uh, I mean, Sharaku is one of my favorite artists of all time. We only know about nine months of Sharaku's career. That's the time a woman is pregnant. And we only know about those nine months, and that's it. And these, the space, in, if you don't know Sharaku, uh, he can interpret the face from the point of view of the actor, the actor's motivation, the character that the actor is playing, and the expression behind that. Four levels, and it's so simple, but yet it's all in the space. It's extraordinary. Well, thank you for answering my question. Um, I think it's a good moment to ask the audience if they'd like to comment on either Yigal. Let's start with Yigal Ozeri, uh, the, the Israeli pre-Raphaelite we were considering. Yes, please wait for the mic so that we can record you. Thank you. Uh, I got interested... Is it on? Yeah. I got interested in the analogy uh, that this artist, Ozeri, made between himself and his interest in Andrew Wyeth because the Helga pictures are so very different. The only uh, connection is the red hair. Otherwise, Helga is an individual, a person. We get interested in what she's thinking. We get fascinated in... Uh, there's a mysterious kind of cerebral quality in those pictures. Uh, Ozeri is simply an opportunity uh, to present a salacious opportunity, you know, a, a chance to enjoy young girls in a kind of, giving it a kind of artistic pre-Raphaelite um, haze uh, as a presentation. So that's pre a pretentious thing. So there's a real uh, disparity between the two. Okay. Um. More on Ozeri? Yes, a gentleman here. This is not so much a question, but when I saw the advertisement and gallery guide for this guy, it was, you know, I paid attention to that. And when I saw photographs advertising the show, I paid attention to that. Ruth just informs me I actually walked into the gallery and walked back out of the gallery because I didn't want to look at the paintings once I was in the gallery. And so what I responded to was a reproduction of the paintings and not the paintings themselves. And for me, that either that's, mm -hmm. I'm not either paying attention or the guy affected me on a level of advertisement rather than on a level of, uh, as an aesthetic yes. well, you, adventure. May, 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 I, may I add something to that? You may, you may have spotted something very peculiar about uh, uh, both uh, Ozeri and uh, Andrew Wyeth. Um, uh, when the Helga pictures came to uh, San Francisco, I noticed that uh, the, the, the Wyeth fans, of which I'm not one, uh, rushed to see this show, but they had demonstrably sank. Their faces fell to the floor as they walked around and rushed to the postcard room where <laughs> they could buy the postcards where the pictures looked great. And that was what Andrew's father, N.C., did par excellence was devised a Mexico parish did it too devised a form of oil painting that looked absolutely terrific in reproduction, and no and nobody wanted to see it in the flesh. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, if there's nothing, no more to be said on Ozeri, uh, let's ask the audience to take this opportunity to share their views on Alex Katz. Um, 
Yes, uh, let's, yes, okay, the lady in black, thank you. Um, I've always liked Alex Katz tremendously, and I thought the drawings were interesting um, because uh, I was told that they, they were hung um, in time, um, so the, the ones on the left were the earlier ones, and the ones as you come back uh, to the entrance are the later ones. And um, since he was trying uh, charcoal for the first time, or charcoal as an expression, an alternate to the hardline pencil drawings, um, I think the drawings improved as he became more facile with uh, charcoal. Hmm. And the ones at the end were absolutely glorious in terms of um, the formal aspects of drawing. They were very beautiful drawings. And I don't know whether they were um, good images of the people they were portraying because I didn't identify that way. So I think it was an extremely interesting show in that it expressed his progress with the medium and uh, very rewarding because of that. Thank you. Uh, yes, Jay, gentleman. Um, I was fascinated by the discussion about awkwardness in cats because to me, um, they're all awkward. Um, it's really just a matter of degrees. And so when the topic of connoisseurship came up, I was reminded that the ones that Robert were talking about that are all kind of scrunched up um, are impossible to sell. You can't sell them, whereas the ones that are much more open, um, there's a ready market for. So yes, interesting. Mr. Grimm there works for Pace Waldenstein, so he knows it yeah. firsthand on the sales floor. Any, any, any other comments to share? They're also kind of not typical, right? They're not typical, the awkward ones? Which? Yeah, the awkward ones aren't as typical as the, por the, the open ones, and the open ones are, right? Is that true? I mean, they're more like Alex Katz. Yeah, when the eyes are at different levels. Um, it, oh, 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 oh. Even, even if it's like a face and they're... <laughs> oh, interesting. That's very interesting. I, I just have a comment to the comment that just because they're not able to be sold now doesn't mean that those are necessarily not as good as the other ones. That's right. Very necessary and valuable correction, thank you. Alex had better start <laughs> writing to his brother Theo immediately. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks, our, thanks to our panel. Thanks to you. <laughs> Good night. Good job. Always fun. It was a pleasure. Really, I enjoyed it.